imagining yourself in the future is a radical act, right? Taking action on that future that's so hard to imagine is next to impossible. So we have to devise a better way to tell stories and help people relate. Again, that's not happening. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, our guest is renowned futurist Amy Webb. Amongst her many accomplishments, she is the founder of the Future Today Institute, a professor of strategic insight at the NYU Stern School of Business, and author of numerous books, including The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity, and The Signals Are Talking, Why Today's Fringe is Tomorrow's Mainstream. This is just a small taste of her many efforts, but to give you an idea of how significant her body of work is and how influential it is, Forbes once listed Amy as one of the five women who are changing the world. In this episode, we take quite a wide exploration of Amy's work, including how to think like a futurist, how to avoid future panic, the impact of COVID on our technological trajectory, the power of storytelling, China's influence in the business world, the impact of social media, and so much more. Now, before we get into it, as always, I must remind you to check out the links in the episode description if you're interested in joining our community where you can get regular access to workshops and networking events that are constantly exploring topics similar to those that you hear on this podcast. And with that quick reminder out of the way, let's not waste any more time. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Amy Webb. And to start, let's get the cliche questions out of the way first. The ones that you are used to. How do you define a futurist and what you do? Sure. So a futurist is somebody who uses data, um, lots of different types of data to track emerging signals, model those signals to find trends, and then use those trends to figure out plausible futures um, through scenarios. So futurists don't predict the future. Uh, instead, we are all about preparedness. So how can we prepare organizations um, to drastically expand how they think, um, to break their mental models, and to give them some flexibility in how they're thinking about alternatives, um, alternative futures. And how do you navigate the trend that a lot of future futurists have of either having a very kind of dystopian or like a very fetishized utopian viewpoint? Is that something you see a lot? And how do you, I guess, prevent yourself from falling into that trap? Yeah. So, you know, there is a difference between um, somebody who is exercising futures thinking, which I encourage people to do. Um, anybody can think like a futurist, right? You don't have, you don't even have to be interested in technology. Um, thinking like a futurist simply means being open to alternative, plausible alternatives for the future, and in my world, plausible includes things like breaking the laws of physics at some point, right? Um, so, so futures thinking uh, is something that anybody can do and should do. 
there's a very big difference between that and somebody who's trained in building models and doing data-driven scenario planning. Um, that's a whole discipline that requires a specialized set of skills. Again, anybody can do it, but it's a little bit like accounting. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to learn how to do it. You got to practice it. And then you've got to remember that you're a creative person and bring creativity into what you're doing. Um, so with that being said, professionals in the space who are trained and, and who do this tend not to be the dystopian or utopian thinkers. Most of us are kind of pragmatists, um, you know, and in my case, I naturally think a little bit more about risk. Um, I'm, I think I'm a little bit stronger on the doom and gloom side of things, um, which makes me very, very useful when I'm working with a, an organization or on a movie or something where we're trying to think about like good, plausible futures. Sometimes it's good to imagine the opposite, um, but it's good to come into projects knowing your instincts and your biases. The futures, the, the people who are interested in the future or technology who do futures thinking, yeah, that's where I see a lot of techno-utopian types um, or abject dystopian thinkers. Um, you know, so, so there. Yeah. You said you tend to gravitate towards the, the negative or the, uh, the risk side of things. Do, why do you think that is for you personally? Um, you know, I think, uh, I'm very good at patterns and I think I just, I think that's how I'm wired. Um, and when I was a little, I, I'm a, I, I, uh, was a very anxious kid um, and didn't have the language to describe it at the time, but I was always worried. And so after a lifetime of being very, very worried and having clinical grade OCD, um, you know, that, that type of uh, neurobiology lends itself a little bit more toward take start, you know, starting at one place and taking that place out to its further extreme where the, the extreme is, you know, death or, <laughs> destruction or, or whatever it might be. So that's the direction that my, my brain um, tends to go in, which means I have to work a little harder at seeing alternatives. And again, that's another really important piece of this. Um, if you are dedicated to exploring alternative futures, you have to be very, very aware of what your own biases are um, and how you normally think, you know, on your own. How do you prevent yourself from getting more anxious in a time where I feel like there's so much data out there for the taking for you to just terrify yeah. yourself with. So I've been in cognitive behavioral therapy for years. Um, actually, normally when you go through CBT, you go through sort of a set, uh, a set regimen. Um, I just kept going to me. It's a little bit like AA. Um, so I still go and I, uh, to keep myself accountable, I check in, but, um, I have, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. So, um, and most people kind of think of people with OCD as uh, it being like a cleaning disorder, like you need to constantly have things be cleaned. It's not really what it is. Um, in my case, it's, uh, you know, my, I, I'm left to my own devices. My brain invents rules. It sees patterns. I think it's what makes me very good at my job. Um, but it also means that, you know, I can quickly, I can quickly go from thinking about, you know, a little bit of natural worry and spinning that absolutely out of control in a very plausible, realistic, horrifying way. So um, I have the tools to mitigate all of that. But through my CBT training, I also know 
that uh, all of that could fall apart tomorrow. Um, so I think the number one thing is being flexible. Yeah, I like that. And what yeah. are the, what are some of the things currently that are, I guess, your biggest causes of anxiety or the things that cause you the most concern as we are navigating this pretty insane mm-hmm. transformation? Um, so I think there's a, I would draw a distinction between the things that cause me actual anxiety and the things that I am concerned about for society. Um, the things that cause me anxiety will, would make no sense to other people. Uh, and they don't make sense to me if I started listing them out, just it's the way, you know, it's, again, neurochemistry and neurodiversity works in, in weird ways. And, you know, um, what's the kind of stuff that concerns me about society? Uh, lack, I mean, generally speaking, a a lack of planning. Um, At a government level, we don't have long-term continuity, which means that it's wonderful that we have an electoral process and we, the people, have the ability to select our leaders. Every couple of years, it also means that in a polarized environment like we're in right now, there is no through line. And so what that leads to is a traumatic level of policy uncertainty um, it means that oftentimes we're ceding control to non-governmental players who they're not going anywhere. Um, and, and that gives them the ability to amass more power to make decisions. And it becomes hard to legislate after the fact. So the fact that we, we really don't have that capability in our government is problematic. Um, two years ago, I think, just, just before COVID, I wrote a paper policy paper trying to establish a um, national office of strategic foresight uh, for the US government. Did that as part of a project at Stanford and we shopped it around, continuing today to show it to people. And, you know, I think the challenge is that with so much, so much changing so quickly, there's not a lot of appetite for investing in something that's intended to look out and plan, you know, five, 10, 20 years. But if we don't do that, then we wind up in situations where we're having to make decisions under duress. So that to me is a huge concern because we are, so not to like, not to get all doom and gloom, but we're facing existential crises all over the place. Um, You know, most of the sea level rise predictions are a little challenging because we don't exactly know how sea level is going to rise, but we've got, you know, mild to moderate to severe um, models for the year 2100. You know, a lot of, even in the mild circumstances, like Miami is wiped off the map. So here's the problem with that. The, the climate catastrophes that we keep hearing about are set in what feels like the Star Trek future, right? So people aren't going to take action on that. And it's not like the year 2100 shows up and that's when our faces melt off because it's so hot, right? Or that's when the city of Miami is underwater. It happens gradually, but we don't have, most people cannot imagine themselves in the future. Imagining yourself in the future is a radical act, right? Taking action on that future that's so hard to imagine is next to impossible. So we have to devise a better way to tell stories and help people relate. And again, that's not happening. So my my biggest anxiety is that in America, we are very much a nation full of nowists. Mm-hmm. We are not futurists. And the past two years of COVID and, and people being afraid and scared and political turmoil and all these things that are happening are making it harder and harder to focus on what might these next order 
outcomes be? Um, so we try to focus on the things that we can control because when you feel afraid, you seek out those things that can you can control or you seek out people who tell you they can control the things. Yeah. And I think that's put us in a really bad spot. And this time where things are so chaotic, do you think it is worth reeling back in that future site and working through the current troubles? Or do you think if we do look forward into something that's beyond COVID, we might benefit more by thinking about the solutions uh, and problems that can come from that uh, that future time? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I can, yeah, I can maybe try to use an analogy that may or may not make sense. Um, so it it looks to me, if I were to take a 40, like a big macro view, um, it looks very much like humanity is going through a slow motion panic attack, right? And what causes, what happens if we break down what's happening during a panic attack? Um, oftentimes you're hit with new information while that process is happening and you can't sort it out and everything feels like it's happening very quickly and you feel like you're spinning out of control and speaking as somebody who's had a few in her lifetime, you literally feel like you're going to die, right? Um, and therefore you're not thinking about the future. You wind up fixating on the hundreds of things in the present that you, you, you know, the places where you don't have control. Um, now, CBT would tell you, there's a lot of parallels between cognitive behavioral therapy and foresight. I um, love it. Yeah, but like, so, and I will tell you ever since I, I actually, uh, ever since I started in treatment a while ago, I've, I think I've become a better futurist um, because part of what you have to do during a panic attack uh, is be, is lean into it. You have to lean into uncertainty um, and be completely okay with whatever is happening, right? And um, you have to not control the situation. You kind of have to give in give into the situation and through it, it's, it's actually, I'm not here giving any type of medical device I, or advice. I'm not a therapist. If this, if you were struggling with this, you need to see somebody who knows what they're doing. I'm trying to make a terrible analogy. Um, but, uh, but the more that you try to exert control in a situation where you've got an untold number of variables, the, the harder you're going to find yourself, you're, you're going to find yourself in some headwinds. So um, I think if it's the case that what we're going through right now is analogous to that, which I think it is, um, then we have to do something that feels wrong, which is we have to lean in. Um, I can give maybe one other quick analogy that is probably better in many ways. Um, so Stephen, I don't know where, where are you based? Are you in a place where it snows? Not really. I'm in Portland, but I grew up in the okay. Midwest. So, okay. So I did too. What part of the, what do you grew up in like Pennsylvania? Cincinnati. Okay. That, I count that. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I grew up just outside of Chicago. Okay. So we know snow, yeah. right? And you probably went through driver's ed like I did. And when you learn how to drive, um, you learn that if you hit a patch of ice and your car starts swerving. So like if you're in San Francisco, you don't know this, but Steven and I know that you don't slam on your brake. Um, you have to, your body feels like you're trying to stop what's happening, Right. Um, because what's really happening is there's all this, all these new data points that are hitting you that are assaulting you like, like, like pellets out of a shotgun all at once. And so what the brain wants you to do is just stop everything from happening. Um, that's very analogous to, again, what we're facing right now, which is that we're being assaulted with all these new data points. COVID's here, COVID's not here. 
vaccine, other type of vaccine, Delta variant, Lambda variant, you know, there's all these things happening. Um, and it feels like we just want to slam our foot on the brake. Um, now, for those of us who have driven on the ice, what we know to do feels very much like something you should not do, which is to steer into the slide. And that, you know, when you start slipping and sliding, you're actually supposed to steer into the direction that you're going while keeping your eye on something down the road. It feels unnatural. Your body will fight against it, but that is the way um, that you're able to slow down what's happening so that you can react better. You steer into the direction you're going. And then when your car goes in a different direction, you steer into that and you just keep doing it. And eventually the car writes itself. Um, to me, that's what we should be doing right now. We should be keeping our eye on the future and doing what we can in the present to lean into uncertainty and continuously you know, steer into the slide. Instead, what I see happening is a whole bunch of people like humanity collectively slamming its foot on the brake, right? And, and you know, that's gonna cause us to, to like donut and, and you know, have whiplash and all the other horrible things that, that come with um, making wrong decisions on ice. God, that is a fan. How many more bad analogies? No, can offer? I was going to say that is a fantastic analogy. As you're saying, I'm like, yeah, that's that makes 100% sense with me. Uh, but it does make me wonder, what is the impact of society slamming on the brakes in terms of what you see as the future? Like, all of, yeah. do all of your models just go out the window now because of this collective no, no. slamming on the brakes? Or Yeah, no, I mean, there's... You know, th things will continue to march on with or without our help, right? This isn't just about COVID, but if we think about COVID for a second, if I were to write a revisionist history of what we've been through, you know, if there had been, if we, if we could go back in time 30 years and teach Americans at the very least, you know, biology, uh, <laughs> everybody understands what DNA is and where it is located, we may not be in a situation today where people are raging against an MR, MNRA vaccine, which literally has nothing to do with fertility whatsoever. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of very smart professional women and men um, who have decided because they're anxious and they're vulnerable, you're vulnerable when you're anxious. So you're, you're glomming onto information when it seems compelling or it, it mimics what you think. You know, I've got a lot of friends who, right, I know a lot of people who have not taken the vaccine only because they think it's going to impact their fertility. Mm -hmm. um, and some of these women are in their, like some of these women, fertility should no longer be <laughs> something that they're thinking about, you know, so we would have to fix that. We would, and, and I think having made more decisive decisions or maybe saying at some point, uh, bringing on, I would, I wish, uh, I wish that there would have been behavioral economists mm. who have been brought on to the COVID team at the beginning to help that team think through their communication strategy. Um, so yeah, I think we could have been in a different spot. And so now we've got everybody slamming their feet on the brakes and how do we solve that problem? You know, I used to wish that it's funny, like if you ever do scenario planning kind of for fun, which we all do, right? That's what everybody does on the weekends. Um, if you, or if you were a debate team person, uh, if you get stuck, you get to the end of kind of a hard, hard scenario or something, and you get stuck. The way out of it is alien invasion. 
right? Or if you're a writer, creative type of person, like just alien invasion, our problems are solved um, because that's what's going to bring everybody together. Right. <laughs> All right. Um, and this is a case where we had an alien invasion and it kind of didn't do like if you watch the what was that movie? Independence Day where the aliens came and I, I, spoiler that's one alert. of the movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They like bombed the White House and whatever. Yeah. Right. Yep. Am I thinking of the right one? Yep. Big Will Smith okay. and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent movie. It's not it's not a good movie, but um but yeah, like everybody unites together and then, you know, they rebuild. Um, so we had our alien invasion in the form of a tiny little microscopic uh, virus. And like we didn't band together. Um, I'm super off track. What are we talking about? Sorry. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> just, what, what did you ask me? Just Why the trajectory post-COVID really. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think, um, yeah. So sidebar, futurists tend not to be linear thinkers. And our brains do this when we say words out loud. Um, yeah, no, my models didn't break um, because there's always flexibility built in because I, I don't think we're living in uh, Elon Musk's simulation, right? So I, I think I, we, there's agency and I, I think there's you know many different possibilities. So there's always flexibility and we always account for uncertainty. Um, yeah, so if anything, just the, there's more complexity now um, because some expected behaviors are different. Um, we had massive economic shifts. So there's like some of those big macro factors, you know, changed and that had reverberating effects. Yeah. What are, um, you mentioned there a little bit, social media and communication. And I'm wondering what are your thoughts right now in, in terms of the way social media is really changing the human condition, changing some of those behavioral side of things that you talked about, maybe changing the fact that we're responding to the the alien invasion instead as a unified people or collective and instead breaking into these like echo chambers and, and divisive tribes. Yeah. So I like to look at, you know, the continuum of things. And it's interesting. I feel like some of the same conversations we're having today about social media where everybody's all fired up and upset are the same conversations people were having about RSS. Like 50, like I remember, I remember people going absolutely bananas because of RSS. And for people who are, I guess, 20 years old and have no idea what I'm talking about, RSS was a little, there used to be this cool thing called a RSS reader. Um, there, I guess, are a few still in existence. I use Feedly, but Google Reader used to be a thing. There were all kinds of them. Um, anyways, so... So I remember people having the same conversation with RSS and with the advent of RSS, right? Everybody's gonna be in their little filter bubbles. They're only gonna read stuff that they care about. They're not gonna read anything else. Um, so I think that's useful to bear in mind because um, we've always, even as technology has morphed and changed, we've always sought out those ideas that we identify with that validate what we're thinking, mm -hmm. right? And I think the key difference between RSS and TikTok's matching algorithms, um, you know, is that uh, our data are being woven into that decision-making process for what to, to share and send to us. And for that reason, the effect is significantly more pronounced. Um, now, that is all old news. So what's the new news, right? Here's where I think things get interesting. 
I don't think it's useful to think of social media itself as a monolith. And I also don't think it's useful to think about the individual platforms as sort of singular in how people interact. I'll give you an example. Um, so TikTok, everybody's familiar with TikTok. TikTok is the place for silly dances and funny, you know, one-liners. I was just thinking this the other night, you know, the one-liners from the Catskills in the 50s, um, those old comedians who would do sort of your, uh, like Rodney Dangerfield, your like one, one-line joke. You know, that's basically what TikTok is now. Um, they're they're, they're one-liners um, at scale, right? <laughs> Rather than one, one person. So that's interesting. But what about the Sheen or Shine? You know what I'm talking about? It's a it's an app where you can- I don't actually. Yeah, okay. So I don't know if it's pronounced Sheen or Shine, but if you are listening and you're 12, you need some friends. This is not <laughs> what you should be doing. Uh, so, or some better friends. If you have a kid though, who's a teenager, um, or I guess you're in your 20s or 30s, you've probably seen this app and it's a, it's a mega aggregator. Um, with literally tens of thousands of brands um, of all different shapes and sizes all in this space. So it's intended as an e-commerce experience, Amazon, but for super trendy things that are very cheap. But the use case for younger people is much more akin to the way somebody would have read a magazine to get inspiration, to get ideas, which means that Pinterest should be look, which is its own social ecosystem, should be looking at Shine as a near peer, which I don't think they're doing, right? Because people aren't just going to shine to shop. It also, however, means that another big e-commerce giant, like a like in, in their space, like a Zara, for example, um, shouldn't just be looking at that as a peer competitor for clothing. They should be thinking about, oh, does this mean that we need to be a media company? Mm-hmm. Right? So anyways, I, Yes, there's a lot of bad, horrible stuff happening on social, but I think it's useful for us to start thinking through in a much more granular way. What does that actually mean? How does it start to evolve? And as we inch toward the metaverse, uh, which is super jargony sounding, right? But, But as the physical and digital realms meld through um, mixed reality and diminished reality and augmented reality and stuff like that, um, how do some of today's problems become significantly more exacerbated, but also is there a way to fight what's coming if we can mitigate mitigate the risk now? Yeah. You're speaking there a little bit about how that evolves and it has me wondering about how we balance the maybe negative incentives of capitalism with mm. what would be maybe considered humanistic progress. Because in some ways I feel like there is a tension there as these things evolve and you you see that things like advertising perhaps um, are acting, I think, in a way that's more exploitive and manipulative uh, mm-hmm. in, in many cases for the sake of money, but they don't really do a lot of good for people's sense of well-being or self-esteem or uh, agency. So I wonder right. how you, if you have thoughts about how we balance that. Well, I think for right now, my observation is that the way advertisers you know, the way a lot of, again, if we're thinking about metaverse in terms of trying to get people to pay attention to things or to buy things, um, I don't think they're quite as far ahead in their mental models 
they're still pretty segmented. So, you know, even Facebook's metaverse, like work from whatever it's called, face, what is, do you know what they're called? That app, the system is called? It's there, it's Facebook has a metaverse for work. Mm, yeah, um, the future of work, yeah. I think is something they have, but I'm not sure if that's yeah. the right thing. I mean, I, what I'm seeing so far is still pretty siloed. Mm. You know, I'm not, I haven't really seen, um, in that space, I'm not really seeing any boundaries truly being pushed, right? I'm still seeing like sort of piecemeal, inch at a time evolution. What I find more interesting is how we're redefining value in a world in which um, there is synthetic and there is real, mm. right? We tend to value real things more and, and fake things or or, you know, uh, less, but um, but I'm looking at what's happening with the sports world and and tokens like fan uh, tokens, which is really to me an interesting new way to think about how value is created and earned, um, and how that evolves. So, for those of you not familiar with what's happening in European soccer, um, the Premier League has started to issue fan tokens. Uh, and some players are getting part of their comp package is in uh, crypto, but it's crypto issued for and by the team. So there's a lot of strange, interesting implications here that range from if part of your comp package is a is an NFT that's specific to this team. How do you what's what's the tax policy for that? I don't mean to get super boring, but like, how does that work? Right. Um, but there's a lot of volatility. Uh, in non-central bank backed digital currencies. Um, so, so, you know, what, what are we saying about people's value? We, we were probably already pretty far out of whack with how much we're paying athletes related to, you know, versus teachers. So that was probably, that probably needed some like right-sizing. Um, but now you've got this additional, so it's like comp driven by ego. Mm or a comp very tied, closely tied to ego. So if, if people like you, you get paid more as an athlete versus your performance or, or whatever else. Or if people decide they, I guess if, if there's a, I could imagine an activist investor who hates, I don't know, pick some player for whatever reason, um, or tries to short the player. I mean, can you imagine the complexity in the financial system going forward on this? Like I hit cannot. jobs on people's personalities. Yeah, yeah. Is there like a crypto mafia that's waiting to be born in the future or after listening to us? I was going to say there will be um, now. Yeah, that like the hit, like you could pay them to do a hit and the hit isn't like doesn't result in death. It results to a devaluation of your of your personal token. Um, so I think that that is, I, I think when we think about the future of capitalism and haves and have nots, it's useful to try to push ourselves beyond the models that we currently use. Okay. Yeah. How do you feel about cryptocurrency uh, as a, a technology moving forward? Do you think we're going to see a greater shift in that direction? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, listen, we do, my company works with a lot of very large global companies and government agencies. So this is obviously, and we, we, we only work with, we mostly work with the executive leadership, right? And their boards of directors. So we get us, you know, this is something people are talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I think the better question is, 
you know, the trend, if I were to talk through what are, what are the trends, you know, is the NFT the trend um, or is the trend more toward decentralizing the, the decentralizing value in a way where it's more democratic, right? Um, or changing who has access to create and designate value. Um, are we watching, you know, the, the, if you think of post-World War II and Bretton Woods Committee trying to make sure that the whole global economy didn't collapse, you know, are we, is there some, is there a decentralized version of that happening right now? Um, so that kind of stuff I'm really interested in, uh, which artist made a NFT of a squiggle um, that, you know, that, that kind of stuff is not as interesting to me, but that to me is a modality of a much bigger change um, that's that's under underway. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit there about culture. I think that makes me want to switch to culture a bit, um, just because I feel like what drives NFTs and crypto right now is kind of like what I think would commonly be called like a hype machine in some ways. Mm. Um, you, would you call it that? Would you call this a hype machine? <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> um, but what do you think about the role of like culture and, and storytelling and, and the evolution of technology and, and how we navigate this? Well, you're a storyteller. What do you, you tell, what do you think? I mean, I, and then I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate you throwing it back at me. I mean, I think it's everything. Uh, in a lot of ways. I, I think we think in stories, you know, it's how we put together our patterns and our understanding of reality. And if somebody gives us a good script or pattern uh, vehicle, i.e. a story, then we'll adopt it and, and we'll adopt it more easily than forming one ourselves because we appreciate that ready-made uh, sense-making paradigm. Uh, and so that's very dangerous if we have bad ones uh, that can be easily adopted by people who want them. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Um, analogies are how we make sense of the world because analogies are patterns and our brains ultimately want to use as, as little energy as possible. It's, you know, um, so yeah, I, I think the question to ask is what are the stories we're telling today about fundamental shifts in society? And are those the stories you know, if, if those, if today's stories are starting places, um, are we gonna be in a position to write the types of endings that we want, right? And sometimes we get so caught up in what's happening that we forget about those upcoming chapters. And so, or, and the, and the other thing I think that you just mentioned, Stephen, which was smart with, is, you know, we tend to, to view the, the present and the future through the lens of the past. Mm which means we're always making comparisons, right? So, you know, whether we're looking at pop stars and I don't listen to any pop music, but I'm assuming for people who do, um, if, you know, you look at pop stars today and they, ah, music wasn't as good as it was in back in my day, right? Or, oh my gosh, look at what kids are wearing today. They, they weren't, you know, um, and therefore we're all going to hell because <laughs> of that, right? We're all jaded curmudgeons. Exactly. Well, because we all become curmudgeons, right? And every, this happens, it feels like we're the first ones going through it. And, and we never are, you know, you know, back in the days of the Conestoga wagon, there was like some that like they circled those wagons around a wagon train and, you know, um, they were, they were all talking about 
you know, these kids today wearing their, they're like poofy bonnets, poofy bonnets are going to take us all straight to hell, you know? Um, so, so it's important to see, I think what's happening in culture. I think, again, there's a little bit of a difference right now in that culture is being manipulated by algorithms designed to attract our attention, which have been designed for the purpose of earning others' money, right? And so I think that's the core difference. And the question then is, if that's our starting point, you know, what does that look like? What that probably looks like going forward is that our culture becomes manipulated by the very best and the very worst of what we can imagine. Mm. And in addition to political polarization, we wind up with polarization within culture, which means beyond the normal sort of, I don't like this type of music, I don't like that type of fashion or art, you know, it's probably something much more scary. You know, what happens if a future war is fought over, you know, like some stupid show, like Glee, uh, you know, um, it also means that culture um, probably has more of an influence than it ever did before. And for that, I would look at China. Mm. It's really interesting. So I used to live in China and Japan. Japan, when I lived there, was full of boy bands singing, not in English, um, who were cute and snazzy and like all the rest of it. So why did Japanese boy band culture and music not make it out of Japan during a time when it could have? Because there were, at that point, like it wasn't that long ago, there were no Conestoga wagons. I mean, there was, there were MP3s, right? And um, so like, why was it Korea and not Japan? And as a result of that, what now does Korea has in many ways a, a huge presence on the global stage because of BTS and Blackpink and other really popular bands. Um, likewise, China is throwing money at all kinds of creative projects uh, from movies to art to sports. And, you know, that's an exercise in soft diplomacy. Um, so we have to start thinking through, and to be fair, America did this, you know, that was kind of our thing, right? Um, so, so what does it mean that through various, um, you know, through investments in Hollywood, um, and entertainment and music companies, but also, um, through its relationships in Africa and South America and Latin America, where it's got a heavy presence because of something called the Belt and Road Initiative, um, as China starts to export out more of that culture, more of its um, ideas and its culture, how does that start to shape global dynamics going forward? So, you know, those are really good questions to ask and they do all come back to telling stories and how we use those stories and analogies to interpret um, signals in the world around us. How do you think, if I can push you on that a little bit, that China's influence, how do you think China's influence is going to impact us? Because I was talking with friends the other day about the fact that a lot of Hollywood, that a lot of our cultural stories check in mm -hmm. with China first to say, hey, in order yep. to access your billion people that we want to sell to, what do we have to do to our movie to make it acceptable for you? And that's a really pretty, in some ways to me, I don't want to like over overhype it or uh, catastrophize it, but that's kind of a scary thing to me to have a country have so much dominance over the mm -hmm. global cultural storytelling. So what so Stephen, this yeah. where so so um, TLDR, yeah, of course, right. But but let's break it down. Um, so let's do one of my favorite things to do as a futurist, which is to practice reperception. So you just told us that 
let's do a thought exercise together. You just told us that um, movies, and by the way, you're totally correct. So, you know, movies, writers, whatever, before they get too far down the pipeline, they check in either with China or their investors, <laughs> you know, want to see and make sure that um, there's no nothing in there that would be offensive. And in some cases, um, the storylines, the dialogue, the people are in, in ways complementary, right? To, to the CCP, the, the Chinese Communist Party. Okay, now, why does that concern you? Why are, that's, you, you literally just said, I don't wanna catastrophize, but, right? And the reason for that is what, freedom of speech, uh, quashing ideas, what's the thing that got, that got you upset about that? I mean, I think, several things. Yeah. Freedom of speech, um, the desire to have increased diversity, what I know about the social score, how I have family who's lived in China and what I know about how China kind of censors things and probably the difference between living in a democracy versus a place that is a communist country and feeling a tension between my right. world being overwritten by another world. Right. So yes, yes to all of that. But if you were to ask somebody who is not as literate or who doesn't know China as well, or just know what's happening as well, they'd be like, you know, so what? China's got a billion people. That totally makes sense. That's a huge market. I bet you if you ask those same people, hey, we're going to make this huge movie. It's going to be amazing, right? The next movie in the Marvel universe. And um, but halfway through, before we go into design, um, like we'll get, we'll get, before we really do storyboards, um, we're just going to like hop on a plane to DC. We're going to check in with the FCC, the FTC. We're going to, uh, we're going to go meet with, um, the Republicans, get their thoughts, get some, some script notes. We're going to check out the, uh, AOC. We're going to ring her up, see what she thinks. Right. If you, if anybody in the United States got word that a Hollywood studio, right, was, was doing that, it would be Armageddon, right? They would protest, but everybody would protest. It'd be horrible. Mm -hmm. Because freedom of speech, First Amendment, Captain America, I guess, right? Um, we don't, most people who don't really know what's happening in China, um, and, and most importantly, don't understand the, the trajectory, the long-term trajectory that China has put itself on through Xi Jinping. Um, they're like, yeah, so what? It's a huge market, billion people, right? And I guess my point of view on this is, in addition to what we just said, there's a billion people inside of China. Aren't there like at least 6 billion people outside of China? So um, in, in an age in which we've got synthetic media, we've got natural language processing that's pretty damn good. The ability to quickly translate, not just language, but to use technology to, to make people's mouths look like they're saying, um, you know, words in those languages. Couldn't you produce a movie at scale, not today, but like five years from now, where on the same day, it could go out to all markets in 200 different languages. And the answer to that is, of course, right? So I think, Again, if we change our perspective, this is what we call reperception, right? In, in foresight, if we're able to change our mental model, suddenly at least the economics of what we're talking about make more sense. Now you're not gonna have an upfront investor to start, but it does start to unlock new ideas as you're thinking about who you would want to invest in a movie. And I'll, I'll drive this home with one last point. 
So I've got a book coming out in a couple of months about the futures of synthetic biology. And um, my publisher, uh, I wanted to do, you know, the galleys are nice. So when you write a book, um, this is my third with this publisher, you get what's called a galley. A galley is sort of like the uncorrected, mostly corrected, probably missed a bunch of stuff, uh, paperback version that just goes out to reviewers and journalists. Um, you know, a lot of people want to listen to books. So I said to my publisher, hey, we live in a world of synthetic media. Can't we just synth the voice and use a synthetic media um, system to, to create an audio galley, right? So people could, could listen. So we did. Turns out the voice, and it's, ama it's amazing. Um, it is so good. It is really good. And the, the voice that we used was Edward Herman, who's read tons of books. He was the voice of FDR. He was actually played FDR. Um, FDR is my favorite president. Um, he's, you would recognize him if you heard his voice. So I'm, but he also died in like 2013. So I get the audio, the synth version of him. And it was, it completely blew my mind because it sounds, you would never know that it was a machine. You would never know. Um, aside from the fact that a lot of what's in that book not all of it, some of it's kind of scary. And he sounded a little upbeat, <laughs> but other than that, it completely blew my mind. So anyway, my point in saying this, and that's today, right? That's right now. So can't we reconceive a future in which maybe we don't need to rely on China um, for media investment and, and for that market uh, when we have the technology to, to reach the other 6 billion people on the planet in some way? Yeah, I actually, as you're saying that, really love that from a like anthropological point of view because it actually would be really exciting to see how different cultures reshape the same story and to actually watch them yeah. for differences. Yeah, um, there was a I don't know if you saw this, but a couple of years ago, somebody was was playing around with um, deep fake technology. It was pretty early, and they used David Beckham to make a PSA about malaria. I didn't see, see this, this one, before? not that one. So they used, uh, I want to say it was maybe a Google model. I forget whose um, voice, whose, whose system they used, but it was a single script that used the canonical voice for whatever translation system, which I think might've been Google, I could be wrong, which meant that the speaker in Hindi was a woman, not a man. And, um, but they had him sitting at a desk giving the speech about malaria in like seven or eight different languages. Um, and it was a little janky, you know, but, but look at where we are today, you know, and on top of that, if there's enough, if there's a big enough corpus, Stephen, of you, which there probably is probably. like, I could make you say anything I want in just about <laughs> any language I want. Um, I'm not suggesting we do that, but I am suggesting that this unlocks, we tend to think about this stuff in really dystopian terms. Mm -hmm. And my point is, you know, aren't there really astounding, amazing things we could be doing for humanity yeah. if we just practice reperception with some of this stuff? How do you think we're going to navigate that? I mean, the deep fake technology really is terrifying a lot of people. Um, I, you, I know you just said, let's be more optimistic and less dystopian, but yeah. do you think we're going to find ways to I guess, flag that kind of stuff, like not, not in a scary way, but do you think we'll find ways to say like, Hey, this is fake and mm -hmm. this is real or does it matter? Like so, yeah, I mean, I think it matters because, um, 
I, I think this is, so I think about Elon Musk posting a tweet about 420, $420 share price on 420, whatever, um, which turned out to be really stupid, you know, whatever he's, it's him. Uh, but that actually had a market impact, right? And I think about the current governance structure in companies, publicly traded companies. Um, in the past few years, if your chief executive had any inkling of COVID, you had to disclose that, right? In, in a lot of places. So here's what I'm getting at. You know, what happens if somebody sends a CEO and for an hour, that CEO is somewhere on social talking about making, you know, making it look like they were overheard in a hallway talking about this is the next big stock or, hey, we're about to do whatever. Um, the way that things work right now, that could have a market impact and forget ethics, forget, you know, like we know deep fakes, you know, have ethical challenges, right? We know all of that stuff, but what actually leads to action? It, it tends not to be a bunch of people who are upset about something. It tends to be something that leads to a lawsuit or a change in the market. Mm -hmm. um, so I think if anything is going to get action, it's going to be, um, you know, a synth led to uh, market volatility or a synth led to a political, you know, some type of political problem, um, you know, then I think we get to some type of action, which at that point will be retro. It'll be, it'll be punitive. Yeah. We're at a point right now where again, like we could think through the different risk scenarios and then backwards engineer potential solutions with the idea that the technology is evolving. And so too will our thinking have to be evolving. Right. So today that might mean some type of digital watermark or, you know, some type of uh, distributed ledger where, or provenance. We talk about provenance a lot for blockchain and goods. What about provenance for my individual features, the intonation of my voice, mm. like stuff like that. Right. So I think that there are ways to accomplish this, but they're going to slow down some of the innovation and progress, which nobody wants. And they're probably going to cost money in time, investment, energy, and attention, which definitely nobody wants. So what probably will happen is that we'll just keep pressing, you know, progress will move ahead until like somebody synths Elon Musk, who says on the next 420, a couple of years from now, that like his new Tesla robot is 420 giga bajillion <laughs> something. I don't know. And it's now in your brain. Uh, surprise, you know, and everybody will go crazy. Do you think that uh do you think that tech companies, the big nine, for instance, will actually have the wherewithal or the impetus to do something about that without some kind of government oversight? Like this gets into the idea of like, should Twitter be a, a government run system? You know, a lot no, of people think about, about it. Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. So years ago, um, I had a brief, very, very brief conversation um, with some publishers. I, so Twitter was going to go public. I never, I was having a hard time seeing a future in which Twitter made the type of money back that would satisfy its valuation, right? At the time that it was getting ready to go public. And I know, and I'm not the only one who thought this. So, okay. So if that's the case, then, then if that's your starting point, what happens? What happens probably is Twitter IPOs, the shares go up, the shares tank. Um, and then if there's no significant change that shows 
how they monetize fast, then that number is probably going to stay low. And at some point, investors get angsty. Any, anyhow, so I'm sort of going forward in time, arriving at the point at which um, it becomes compelling for an outside conglomerate to buy the investors out at a much more reasonable rate. So not their expected 10x return, but like whatever they put in. Um, and my thought was that, you know, global publishers should create a conglomerate and turn it into sort of a 21st century version of, of Reuters or the AP, mm. a newswire, um, where news was verified. It was, and it's fine for it to be conservative or liberal, but it wasn't factually incorrect, you know, and um, people still got to use it, but it also in, you know, up until somewhat recently, because some, some of the tech changed, um, I had a little script and a tool using, uh, using Twitter lists and feeds as a way of aggregating critical, uh, aggregating things when there was a critical mass of certain people talking about them and, and link sharing. So it was like an intelligence gathering tool, among other things. Anyways, um, you know, and then Trump got elected and then, you know, now it's no fun anymore. Um, so I think, I think the ship on, I, I tried to get publishers uh, interested, some news executives interested, and they kind of didn't, these, this was back in the days when NPR was still kind of making fun of Twitter when they, when they were talking about it on air mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it, it was a little early. Um, not too long after that, I was at the State Department talking about what I thought was going to be a coming onslaught of bots um, and a change in how diplomacy was practiced through social. And again, it was just hard to get people excited. Um, and I don't think it's me. I think I'm pretty good at getting people excited about things. I, I think at some point, um, again, it's just that lack of vision, you know? And so here we are. Uh, should the government ut- utilitize it, make it, <laughs> turn it into utility? I don't know. I don't know what purpose it serves at this point. Yeah. Um, though. Do you like the idea of like a digital ID? Like if people had like a social social security number yeah. tied to it to I don't think it matters if I like it or not. I think they're coming. You think um so? so in lots of countries now in the United States, I don't know yet, but I do know that in a lot of countries around the world, um, digital ID systems are very much in progress um or are are launching soon. Um, they typically come from either financial institutions or governments. Mm. Uh, so in the United States, what does that look like? I think it's going to be harder because we have this federal, it's, it's more of a federalized system, federalized, that's not a word, federal federalized system. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we don't even have consistency in our driver's licenses yet. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, I think it's interesting what clear is doing, um, what is this? with, so clear, if you've been to an airport, you probably, nobody's been to an airport in two years, but pre-COVID, um, Clear is a is the kiosk at security where some people scan their boarding pass and their thumbs or their eyes, and then they jump the line in front of everybody else. So it's a pre-screening, for-profit pre-screening system. And they've been doing some pretty interesting work. Um, I know for a short time at the Mets state, where the Mets play in New York, um, they had a, a automated kiosk. I don't know if it's still active or not, um, but it was a Budweiser partnership. So you could go up and use your clear. So if you had clear digital ID, um, it would scan you um, and you could take whatever beer you wanted. So it was like 
and automated, and, and then you would be charged. So that's pretty radical in the US considering how heavily we card people for, for Bud Light, you know. Um, so, so I know that was implemented. I know that there is some movement um, uh, between Clear and TSA to, to make some of that program a little bigger. I think one of the questions we ought to be asking ourselves is what does it mean for a third party non-governmental entity um, to help be building out or in some ways monetizing that type, those type of data, right? Um, especially because we live in a situation where, you know, if you've done ancestry or any of these genomic data tests uh, for whatever purpose, you know, the, you don't own those data anymore. Your genetic data. Oh, here's a crazy statistic that I can't remember where I, where we got this from. Um, it's in our trend report from this year. So the average American, when asked, will give away their genome, their genomic data literally their source code for $95 for less than the price of Air Jordans. <laughs> okay. they, 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 they value their personal source code, their genomic data less than they value a pair of sneakers. Okay. So anyhow, I was just going to say, do you think that what what is the danger there? I guess that people should be concerned. I mean, I did it, and 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 for me, my thought is, I actually want them to have it to to do science and to hopefully advance. And yeah. I don't see them like releasing a, a virus or something that's like custom to my DNA or anything. So no, but I think the problem is. So I know that I'm not going to name the company, but there was a company, pretty big company, that people were sending their samples to to get back. Um, greater detail on their genome, mm -hmm. right? And that company partnered with an enormous pharmaceutical company. So on the one hand, yeah, like who doesn't want to, like when I, like back in the day, I used to donate my own unused, my uh, unused compute to, to Berkeley, which for like for SETI, like research, you could, you could donate, leave your computer hooked in and, and run some software. So of course, donate for science, always. Um, donate to a pharmaceutical company that's going to use my data, not pay me any, like not remunerate in any way, and then create a bunch of drugs that are potentially out of reach for the people who need them because they can't afford them. Like, no, I'm not down for that. Or take the Cambridge um, Analytica approach where your information yeah. becomes weaponized. That's right. And so I think the solution to this, because I think these companies, we don't, we don't fund basic research in the United States. So if we want to advance, we're going to have to, we have to allow these commercial entities to do their thing, which I'm totally okay with, but let's just be radically transparent about it. Yeah. Right. And let's give the people, let's give people the opportunity to opt back out if they are no longer happy with what they're seeing in your radical transparency. Estonia does this pretty well. Estonia created a biobank, a national biobank, giving people the opportunity to opt in without remuneration. It was just like, hey, do you want to be a part of this? But before they did that, they went to some classes to learn more about what is this stuff. Now, Estonia is a country of 4 million people in Central, North, Central Europe. They are very digitally ahead of basically the planet, right? Um, but a huge number of the 
population has opted into this because they want to help each other out, but also they're educated. They understand what's happening and there's no nefarious like backdoor stuff, you know, happening at the same time. So I guess the reason it works in Estonia is trust and there's radical transparency and people are educated. The problem in the United States is we're not investing in education. Uh, a lot of companies believe that radical transparency leads to future class action lawsuits. And none of us trust anybody or each other. And so there, there's your dystopian end to our long-winded, ridiculous conversation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I totally uh, get, I'm with you on all of the data stuff once you get into that realm. Uh, obviously, we are running out of time here. I do want to give you a chance before we jump off, though. Do you want to quickly talk about Genesis Machine or any of the upcoming work you yeah. have coming down the line that you'd like to tell people about? Sure. So um, the Genesis Machine is my latest book. Uh, comes out in February, but you can pre-order it now. Um, it's about the futures of synthetic biology. So imagine a future in which you could program a cell the way you would program a tiny computer. Um, it sounds very fantastical and futuristic, but um, that's, that's actually the course that we're already on as scientists are starting to radically reinvent science. So there's a tremendous amount there that is game-changing. Um, we may need this work to save us from ourselves and future climate change, uh, the climate emergency. There's also a lot of risk. So um, the book is an examination of how we got to now and where we're going. Um, if you missed biology class, totally fine. We wrote this for everyday people, not scientists. Um, so I wrote it along uh, with a friend named Andrew Hessel. Um, he's, a, he's a scientist who's worked with uh, lots of people, including George Church. Um, and it's a, it's a, I think it's a pretty good book. Um, the middle section, the whole middle of the book are speculative. It's all speculative future. Um, and one of the, I don't want to spoil it, but one of the speculative scenarios is, there's two that are kind of cool. I mean, they're all good, but um, one of them uh, is a FAQ from a fertility center in the future um, that takes would-be parent uh, through... <laughs> Uh, a bunch of questions about genetic architecture. Mm. So obviously sort of hidden packed in here is, we're saying that in the future, you, the whole construct of what is a parent and what does it mean to create life is very different. Uh, it's a much more equitable future for all humans, not just um, female, people who are born with female genitalia or men, uh, male genitalia. Um, and I think it's, it's not about designer babies, it's about genetic architecture. Um, with some warnings baked in. So the other scenario that's kind of cool, um, a lot of cities, including New York, have local magazines or guides, and they always produce like a restaurant guide. You know, So we wrote a restaurant guide from the year 2037. And it's like, instead of like the best new Mexican restaurants, it's like the best new bioreactors. And here's where you can go to get resurrected meat. And uh, so anyhow, I think it's pretty cool. Um, it comes out in February, but you can, you can order it now. Awesome. I look forward to it. Amy, yeah. this was a really fun conversation. I wish we had more time, uh, but I thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun.